0: All right, so we're in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 18 today, and uh, uh, I'm going to read it and then we'll pray before we get into the sermon. I do have a manuscript today, so we'll be at lunch on time. Um, that's a promise, that's a promise. Um, so this is chapter 3 of 2 Peter, I'm going to read from verses 1 to 18, it's a, a little bit long, uh, but, but hear the word of God as I read this. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? or blemish, and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. So let me pray. We've got a text here about uh, fire and the end of the world. So it's going to be a nice little morning for us today. Um, let's, let's see what we have uh, in store for us. I think we're going to actually take it somewhere else, but let me pray. Lord, thank you for this community that, uh, in which we experience you, not only through your word, but through the ministry of each other by the Holy Spirit. In all our differences and even disagreements sometimes, I thank you that you are present in the midst of that, And, Lord, that you call us to be a people consecrated to you, a people set apart to be holy, to be conformed to your image. And I thank you, Lord, that you're not only the creator God, but you're the redeemer God, the one who almost uh, to our surprise we'll find today is not the creator and destroyer, but is the creator and redeemer and renewer of all things. Lord, let the fire of your Holy Spirit burn in our hearts today And open the eyes of our hearts as we hear your words speak to us again this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so what I want to do is, this is an interesting text to me, because it is a text that on the surface of it seems to be about the end of the world. And there are some Christians, and you might have run across these circles, this is their favorite topic to speak about. Somehow, it's like, I have good news for you. And then it's like Dante's Inferno pictures, and, and that... It's supposed to be good news, um, and it is particularly strange in America, on almost every major street corner in America, you'll find people with the Jesus Saves hat, and then a detailed picture of the terrors of hell that are in store for humanity, and they're smiling, and it's just creepy. Um, but what I really want to get at today is, what, what would that mean if this text were about the destruction of the, the cosmos? Would that create a problem? If it's read that way, it's not a problem for these people who take it that way, but I think it's a major problem because the creator God of Genesis 1 would turn into the destroyer God of the book of Revelation. The God who created all things and said they are good and on on, on the seventh day rested would be the God who on the final day destroys all things. It's kind of like when you build a, a block house with a toddler And some of us like to build things and create, and we're sort of proud even as adults when we build what is actually a really cool thing. What does a toddler do after the thing has been built up for three minutes? They smash it into pieces with delightful glee on their faces. And the interiority of our souls is crushed as we lament our beautiful building being crushed. And that's sort of the image of God I have when people preach about a God who created the earth, called it good, but then came up with a plan B, which starts with becoming not the redeemer and renewer of all things, but some sort of a cosmic example of an adolescent pyromaniac who's going to burn all things up before, in uh, a sort of end of the world fireworks show. And Is that a problem? I think it is a problem. I think that kind of eschatology is a problem. And it doesn't just affect the way we think about how we relate to our planet, which is a pertinent issue indeed. And I think a Christian issue and, and dare I say, a gospel issue, I think that's important because God's made us stewards of this earth. But that kind of interpretation is problematic because it changes the nature of God himself. From one who is redeeming and renewing all things to one who is, at the end of days, destroying all things. So that's why I think this is a tough text. However, I'm happy to report uh, that that's actually... Not what's going on in texts like this, in texts like the Book of Revelation, or in Matthew twenty-four when it talks about um, the the moon and the stars going out, and it seems like the world is just exploding. These are often taken as the cataclysmic end of the world text, but what they're really pointing to is this: not the end of the world, but the end of the world as we know it. To quote REM um, from the (laughs) eighties. It's a great, yeah, let's sing it together. <laughs> Everybody, together. Uh, and yeah, if you could actually sing that all the way through with those really speedy lyrics, then I think you would get an HD for your whole college experience. Um, when we see this kind of language in the text, what, we, what I'll be arguing today is, yeah, it's not that the, the end of the space-time cosmos is happening, but that something new is being born in creation. That The Jews would use language of cataclysmic destruction to talk about. And the way I've talked in my classes about this is, if you say, so-and-so won a victory in the election, and it was a landslide victory, right? And then if you go back and start asking, like, on what mountain did the voting occur? You'd be like, no, 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 it's just this, it's a figure of speech, it's a way to, it's a metaphor, right? And I think sometimes we read the scripture literally where we're supposed to take it the way a Jew would read it, which is actually to say, They're using this language to talk about something else. The nature of reality is changing. Something pertinent and specific is happening. Now, what do I think is going to be happening? Well, thank you for asking. Um, What is actually happening is is it's kind of to solve one problem, right? like he's not going to destroy the Earth, but to create another problem. So as I solve that problem, I'm going to create another problem for you. It's actually arguing about the judgment based on works on the last days. So it's like, great, he's not going to destroy the earth. Oh, yeah, we're going to be judged according to our works. Now, as you hear me say that, you might be thinking as a Protestant, I'm not saved by my works. I'm saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But what we're going to look at is some texts that say, yes, you're absolutely saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Because of him, you can boldly approach the throne of grace. Because of him, there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. On the other hand, There's all these texts in the Bible that we sort of, as Protestants, skip over because we don't really know what to do with them. That talk about a judgment according to works. And so what Peter is doing here is not going to be talking about the burning up of the cosmos, but about the burning away of everything around us from which we try to hide from God, including, metaphorically, inside ourselves, as if God cannot see there the burning away of all those things so that we stand before God with nowhere to hide on the judgment day to give an account of our lives, both as Christians and non-Christians, both those who are believers in Jesus and those who are non-believers. So that's good news that he's not going to destroy the earth. And I think good news that there's a judgment based on works, but I'm going to try and articulate why that's the case. Okay, so come with me here. And, um, and by the way, you might think this is a Catholic thing to talk about works. You say... I used to say, God cares about how we live. And this, this guy named Bill back in New England would say, that's so Catholic. It's, soft. it's very Catholic of you to say such a thing. would be like, it is Catholic of me to say such a thing. It's actually Roman Catholic of me to say such a thing. You say, what? Well, the book of Romans, verses, chapter 2, verse 6 through 8, <laughs> it says this. He will render to each one according to his works. So it's Roman, and it's also Catholic in the sense that all Christians at all times in all places have believed there's a judgment according to works. We just don't really like to think about it, so we kind of tuck it in there and say, Jesus doesn't really care how I live now. It's all about what he's done. I can just sort of do whatever, and he's going to forgive me at the end of time. Have you thought like that? Sometimes we think like that because we don't know what to do with works. And in the larger culture of Christianity, there is a view of god that some have called moralistic therapeutic deism this is grandpa god up in the sky with his beard just saying whatever you do i have unconditional love for you <laughs> unconditional love it doesn't matter do whatever you want <laughs> and it, like apply that and you think like that sounds sometimes you're like that's so good but what kind of a human parent would just say that's great you're lighting things on fire in the house mm. I unconditionally love you and I have no discipline to offer you and I just accept that, that you're a type of child who likes to burn things. <laughs> you would say, surely God has something to say beyond the true fact that his love is unconditional and unable to be exhausted. Okay, let's get into 2 Peter. You notice I have pages here today. This is, this is important. This is a big one for me. Um, 2 Peter I want to talk about. I'll just read through it and kind of exposit it a bit. Um, starting from the promise in chapter four, I mean in verse four. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were since the beginning of creation. Now, oftentimes we think of this in terms of non-believers uh, making Christians, you know, say, saying something to Christians, like, where is this Jesus of yours? I don't see him, nothing's changed. And so. But actually, I want to invite you to think about this inside your own heart. Because what's going to be exposed today is not just that non-believers will be judged, but that God judges the hearts of Christians at the end of time. That's actually the teaching of the Bible. You won't be saved because you're imperfect, but God will judge the things of your heart. And, And is there something in you that says, maybe, maybe he's not coming back. Maybe he's not concerned with how I live now. And there becomes a kind of capitulation to the culture. There becomes a kind of adoption of, the dominant culture, where whatever the culture thinks is good, that's fine. God doesn't really care about behavior. He just cares about taking me to heaven when I die or something like that. It's, it's powerful to think of. I want to I ask you to speak to your own heart as you hear this, because when I do that, literally the other day, I woke up at 3.30 in the morning thinking, oh, the, the, the interiority of my soul is often far from God. Do you hear what I'm saying? This is like dangerous self-disclosure. <coughs> and do you feel that sometimes? That deep within, that the holy God of all creation, if, if you were to stand before him, that the interior life that you have, the thought life that you have, the desires that you have, that, that you allow yourself to take hold of, that if God were to look upon those, that, you know, makes a difference to God, that, that he cares about holiness. It's not to make you feel bad, but it's to make you feel... Think about the interiority of your being. For deliberately, they overlook this fact, that the heavens long ago existed, and the earth was formed out of water and by the water, and that by that means it was flooded with water and perished. Now, here's a key to begin with, that God's not dis- after a destruction of the earth sort of thing. It's a reference to the flood. The known world at the time was flooded. It was probably just the Mediterranean area that experienced some sort of a flood. That Then we have these religious accounts from all over saying there was a, a flood happen. And in the Bible, that's interpreted as judgment, right? And at the time, the world didn't perish in the sense of it no longer existed. When we say something died, we mean it ceases to exist. Its life has gone out of it. But the earth at the time didn't perish. It was, it was refreshed. It was judged is the theme. So the earth didn't perish in the original flood, but by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire. Here we go. Being kept into the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. We want to we get at what that's looking at. And so then coming to verse 8. But do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years. A thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. Now, I find it striking because often promise is the covenant promises of God being fulfilled that he's going to be faithful through Jesus Christ to save the world, right? But in here, it's the promise that there will be judgment, that there will be a reckoning, that there will be, at the end of days, a God who rights all the wrongs of the universe and who knows the desires of the heart and who knows the works of human flesh and will judge them. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, but is patient with you. Why? Here's a key thing to think of. He's not wishing that any should perish. Um, but that all should reach repentance. Now, there's certain traditions in the Christian church that say, well, it says he wants all to reach repentance, but that just means all kinds of people. Short people, tall people, people from Europe, people from America. Literally, that's how they take it. He doesn't want all people to come to salvation. That's legitimate theology within the Reformed kind of sphere of things. But... I don't think that's what it's saying. I think it's actually saying that God desires all people to come to a knowledge of the truth and desires all people to be saved, that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and that in First Timothy particularly, it says he's the Savior of all people, especially those who believe, First Timothy 4, verse 10. So if, if you start thinking, why is God delaying? It's not because God doesn't see. It's because God desires salvation and renewal for all people, and indeed for the entire cosmos. But on the basis of that, he's not absent. And he is providentially over all of creation still, is what Peter's going to talk about. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then, here's, here's the key verse, the heavens will pass away. And with a roar, the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. Now that language of passing away, doesn't that sound like death to you? It sounds like someone died, we say they've passed away. But actually what it means here is it won't continue in its current state. That's what the word literally means. The the way things are now will be different when the new heavens and the new earth are renewed. So when we hear and when popular Christianity hears and when the people who wrote Left Behind movies or whatever these things are heard, the world's going to pass away. They mean the world's going to be burned up and then a lot of Christianity has said, so this world doesn't matter. Physicality doesn't matter. The care of creation doesn't matter. Human body itself doesn't matter. God's going to take us to the spiritual at the end, right? But the God who created all things and called them good in Genesis did not change his mind. He didn't go from creator God to destroyer God. He went from creator God to redeemer God. That is the God that we worship. And so the physical world matters because God, through his Holy Spirit and through the gospel, doesn't want to just bring you to heaven when you die. In the book of Revelation, chapter 21, he is going to bring heaven to earth in, in the end of all. And we're a part of that. <laughs> and so it's a beautiful thing. But it's much better than him destroying the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> but you, you, sometimes you preach this, and people have always heard, well, first he destroys it. And then we go, I don't know where, like outer space or something, and we're with Jesus somewhere else. But actually, the idea is that he renews the whole thing. And I'll, I'll make a case for that in a minute. But that, I, that word in Greek, that it would pass away, just means it's going to move into a new phase. That's what it means. It's going to move into a new phase. It's not going to be the same as it was before, but it's going to have a continual nature with it. And, you know, it's the same thing with the resurrection. You, you know, it's not like we, re, we come out of the, you know, ground or whatever on the last day, and it's, it's like, ow, man, a mosquito bite, right? It's like, oh. but like, it's, the, it's the end time, so it doesn't matter anymore because there's no tears. That's not what the point is. The point is that your body is renewed, redeemed. It's changed. It's transformed. But physicality itself is embraced because God is a God who creates, not destroys. But we shall continue. He says it will be the earth And the works that are on it will be exposed. Now, that's the key to look at. In the second temple period, in the biblical text, whenever it talks about things like this in Joel chapter 2, you're going to see blood coming out of the mountains. And the skies are going to bleed and the stars will fall from the sky and all these things will happen. You'd expect Joel, right, the prophet Joel, to say, and then the earth is going to end. But that's never what they say in the Old Testament. They'll say, the, God, you know, there's going to be earthquakes and bleeding from the mountains. And you're like, my goodness, it's the end of the world. But then there'll be, and that's when the judgment happens. It's always using this cataclysmic language to talk about God's judgment taking you from the world as you know it to a new kind of world. It's never about God destroying what he created. It's always about God judging and then redeeming. You'll notice that after the judgment people flood back into Zion, you'll be like, wait a minute. I thought you just destroyed this all, Lord. How can they flood back into something that you destroyed? It's because he didn't destroy it physically. It's that he uses that language of cataclysmic destruction in that time was a way to say, again, it's like a landslide victory. It's not about a mountain. It's about a metaphor. Um, And the thing that is exposed is not like the inner stuff of the world, like all the rocks melt. Look, look what he says. What is exposed when everything is you know, metaphorically burnt away are the works that are on the earth? And what he means, and we'll see as I kind of bring this into the second segment, is actually the works of Christians and non-Christians. This what he's referring to is the judgment according to works in the last days. Okay. And, and just briefly, since all these things are thus to be dissolved... He doesn't say, "Prepare your rapture kits." Since all these things are going to happen, wear a suit that is, you know, flame retardant or something. You know, have a fire thrower, a fire uh, extinguishers. He says, "Since all this is going to happen, what sort of people should we be in lives of holiness and godliness and waiting for the new earth and this sort of thing?" And so, the emphasis that he makes is not about cataclysmic apocalypse, the emphasis that he draws us to is holiness, is sanctification, is Christian. Do you know there's over 400 imperatives in the Pauline epistles alone directed to Christians about how we're meant to live? I often hear people say, God doesn't care about behavior. He just cares about, I don't know what it is, making me feel affirmed or something like that. God cares about how we live. It's called holiness, And God is a consuming fire. Um, And different Christian traditions take that different ways, but um, we'll we'll look at a few different ways. The reason I think this is important is because deep within the Protestant tradition, here I'm going to go with Luther again, okay? Martin Luther, who is brilliant in some ways and, and just had some areas that he could prove, like all of us. Let me give you a couple quotes from Luther. Now, I'm not throwing him under the bus. He's not here to defend himself, and I might have to face Luther someday. Bring it on. Bring it on. (laughs) I like Calvin better, Luther. And John Wesley even more. Never mind, Bart. (laughs) Luther said these things, and I'll just quote a couple things from his Luther's works. So Luther got some things right. You can't earn your salvation, right? So listen, when I'm saying that works matter and that he's trying to expose our works, it's not so that you can earn God's favor. No, 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 no. As Luther rightly said, you cannot earn God's favor. It's completely a gift. It's the free gift and grace of God that you receive by faith. But then God says, you've been created for the purpose of living a holy life. And then he actually tells us what that means. We have a problem sometimes with that today. That's our problem. Take it up with God, right, if you have that problem. It's his word to us that's eternal. We must submit to it. It does not matter, Luther says, what people do. It only matters what people believe. No. (laughs) Luther, this is not an HD. This is like barely a P. Right? Return again, Luther, to 2 Peter and realize that it will be all burned up. You'll be standing naked before God having to say, I shouldn't have said that. No other sin exists in the world except for unbelief. Really? Seems to me that God is quite concerned with the way we live. And and we need, to, we need to rejoice in that because it's far better than the things that we think give us life. Again, as you're looking at the interiority of your soul, what are the things that you desire more than God? That is how sin is birthed. And that is, when you pursue that, right, you know that that is killing you. Even as a Christian, it's not incidental. It's fundamental. It will kill your spiritual life. It will sink you. I'm not saying you won't be saved. But you're going to experience hell. You're going to believe in hell because you're going to experience it in life. I'm speaking as someone who, you know, I'm speaking to myself here as much as whoever's listening. You owe nothing to God, says Luther, except faith and confession. In all other things, he lets you do as you like. Luther said elsewhere, sin boldly. Right? Because you're saved by faith. And the the end result of this has been that within the Protestant tradition, there's been a de-emphasis on Christian living and a really good emphasis on Jesus Christ's work for me, for my sins, and all those things. But there's been a de-emphasis on holiness. And this is a really important part of Christian living because God doesn't call you to just be declared righteous. He calls you to be transformed by the Holy Spirit. That's the fullness of life. It's not a ticket to heaven when you die. It's a transformative indwelling of God's Holy Spirit. So that in the, in, on the last day, the life you live matches up with the profession you make. De- at, look deep in your heart, because this is what I did at 3.30 in the morning the other night. I was telling my colleagues this, they're like, dude, you all right? I was literally sitting up going, you know when sin grabs you, when you see sin for what it is, and you stop this self-justification, and you let yourself see the depth of the depravity of the human soul when it grabs onto something and says, I will worship you, I need you, I can't be happy without, what is that? Because it's, it's in you and it's in me. What is that? It's sin and it will kill you and it will cause you to walk apart from Jesus. And some, listen, I'm not trying to be a scary man. Some people will say, oh, you could never lose your salvation. Actually, Wesley would think you could by falling away, by living into disobedience. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just saying, we don't know. Hey, what if the Catholics are right? Right? It's been like, man, that's a long time in purgatory. <laughs> right? It's like, uh, I buy some indulgences or something from Luther. <laughs> um. Sorry, but okay. Just in case you think like, oh, here's John beating up on Luther again. Look, let me quote Wesley, okay, because he does it too. Wesley, well, is this Wesley's comment on Luther according to the law? He says, how blasphemously does he speak? About good works and the law of God. Constantly coupling the law with sin, death, hell, or the devil, and teaching that Christ delivers us from all alike. Christ no more delivers us from the law of God than he delivers us from holiness or heaven. So Wesley read Luther's Galatians commentary in the Reformation time, and he was like, Oh no, Luther, you're missing a major component like holy living. You can't sign up for the justification package and not tick also sanctification. It's all in, right? And, and that was Luther's point. Now how this plays out, and I'm going to start wrapping up uh, because, ooh, my stomach's a growling. Um, <laughs> sorry. Uh, how this works out for Catholics is they say, they say, well, you got to do penance. Have you heard about that? Mm-hmm. I grew up in the Catholic Church. I was confirmed in the Catholic Church. I didn't know what it meant at the time, but I did it because my nana wanted me to. Okay? She was very happy with me. Um, you had to do penance, and a lot of Protestants think, oh, the Catholics believe they're saved by their own works. Everything they do earns a salvation. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's a complete erroneous view of Catholicism. What, Catholic, what Catholicism teaches is that the work of Jesus once for all, what he's done for you, is applied through some of the sacraments. So when you do works of repentance, penance, you're actually drawing from the efficacy of Christ's sacrifice that's eternal because he is eternal God. Right? So that's what they're thinking. They're not thinking you on your own can work your way to heaven, which is you know, kind of what Luther thought. No, no, no. They're teaching that you, you draw on the efficacious nature of Christ's work. And in the same way, uh, many evangelicals have thought we know that there's a, a judgment according to works. It has to do with reward. Have you heard that one? Like the level of reward that you'll get. And that's also a possibility if you read 1 Corinthians 3. that There's different experiences of maybe the beatific vision or, or, or being with God. we will all be eternally happy, but there's a difference in experience based on the way we live. In other words, living isn't incidental. Holiness isn't incidental. It's fundamental to what God wants to do. Others, like the Reformed, say that the works of your life are evidence that you're actually saved. I'm not going to say which one I hold to today because um, I, 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 that's not the point of the sermon. But it's, it, that there's so many views. I, I, actually, there's about 40 different views that people take on this. 40 different views on exactly what the judgment according to works is. What that means to me is it matters to God. I might not be able to totally figure it out, but God calls us to holy living. He does, right? He doesn't put four hundred imperatives into the New Testament as a joke. And I mean, in moral and vice, virtue and viceless, He puts it in there because He not only wants to call you righteous, He wants to make you righteous. And He accepts you on the basis of Christ, but He calls you to change, to become a, a worshiper of Him and to be conformed to His image. Um, let me just read a few verses in closing. <laughs> on the judgment of works. So the good news is God's not gonna destroy the earth. No, 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 siri. No, he isn't gonna do it. He isn't gonna do it. Bad news is that what he's gonna burn away is everything around you so that when you stand before him on judgment day, even though as far as east is to west, your sins are forgiven and he will accept you, you must give an account to God of your works. You say that's preposterous, that's not the gospel. Well, let me read a few verses. Nothing nothing like proof texting when people disagree with you. (laughs) It says in Matthew 16, verse 27, the Bible says, for the son of man is come, going to come with his angels in the glory of his father. And then he will, he will say, I have unconditional love and nothing else to ask of you. No, and then he will repay each person according to what he or she has done. That's what it says. He's talking to Christians at that point. Like John chapter 5, do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of death. Many will say to Jesus in the last day, Lord, Lord, didn't we walk with you? Didn't we make a profession of faith? Didn't we tick all the boxes we needed to tick? And Jesus will say to them, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I know that doesn't fit the hippie Christ, but that's the Jesus Christ who's in in the Bible. That is the God of the Bible. He's calling us to holiness, holiness. He is a consuming fire and we, you know, we don't need to be afraid of God, but we do need to fear, have fear and reverence for God. And when we're calling people and ourselves too into a relationship with God, yes, he doesn't accept us on the basis of how perfect we are, but he calls us to live a holy life and we will give an account. It says this in the book of Revelation. Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one. For what he has done. And then it says in Romans that he will pay each one according to their works. And many other places such as 1 Corinthians. So here's the point. And this is why it's a hard text. It's a hard text because people preach it wrongly and say God's going to torch the earth. Which is about as far from the truth as you can get. God is the creator and redeemer not the destroyer. However, God calls us, It reminds us, this is why it's a tough text that God calls us to live a holy life. And so as I wrap this up, what I really want to focus on is an invitation to myself and to you to say, if we were to look inside the depths of our souls, are there things that we excuse ourselves about in our own thought processes, in our own actions, but then accuse others of? In other words, are we Pharisees? right? It's striking to me, wherever you fall on the left of the right, that many, many people will say, um, hey, um, you know, human sexuality, important issue. This view is right, this view is wrong, and then if you take the wrong view, you're going to hell or something like that. But then they won't also say, and God calls you away from greed, and God calls you away from this host of other things. You go, that doesn't sound like Grandpa God in the sky with his beard and his peaceful demeanor well that's not the God of the Bible the God of the Bible is a God who calls us to holy transformation and that when we seek to come before the throne of God boldly we realize that our works will be judged at the end of time now whether that means your reward will be different or whether that means if your life is claiming to have faith but walks in the opposite direction that is meant to make you stay on guard the the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the the night and God calls us to holiness. Why? Because he's some judge in the sky who wants to judge us? Because the whole point of God's creation, Thomas Aquinas would say, is to bring us into a relationship and an experience ultimately to the beatific vision of God, to actually experience fellowship with God. And so what God wants to do is prepare us to experience him. And if, if we feel like Oh, we've already got that covered. We've just placed our faith in Jesus. We miss the transforming power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we often point to other people and notice their sins, but don't let the sifting power of the Holy Spirit change us from within. And then we wonder why nothing changes in our lives. So as I, as I close, I'll just say this, and I am closing. My prayer is that as we identify, I'm going to ask you just for yourself, Look inside, and maybe this week, think about what those things are. And what actions can you take to root out those things in your life that would make you feel ashamed on the last day, that would, that would spit in the face of God on the last day, that you could root out of your life, but that sometimes we don't want to root out of our lives. We want it. It's insatiable. It's good. And then we want more of it, and it kills us, sin. So ask God, what can you do? And then, as Matthew 3 verse 8 says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And in the old translations, that actually is do penance. And I think it's helpful for us to remember that doing works that accord with repentance means I don't just say I don't want to live this way anymore. I do something as I turn. I I change my mind. Not only change my mind, I change my direction. That we refuse to let holiness grip us and that we realize that though God will not destroy the earth, the fires of judgment will reveal the interiority of our being and the the depths of our hearts. Create in us clean hearts, O God, and renew a Holy Spirit within us. Let me pray. God, instill in us and renew in us a reverence for your word that you have inspired and that you have given us, and in which you tell us that you desire us to be holy as you are holy. Keep us from legalism and from guilt and from shame. Let us place those things at the cross where they have been defeated by Jesus in his victorious death and resurrection. But, Lord, come within our hearts and tell us and instruct us and help us To see the depths of our own sin, which capture our affections and turn us from you. And as the psalm says, let us delight ourselves in you. So that you may give us new desires in our hearts. And we pray these things in Jesus' great name. Amen.